to the podcast, Jesus Has Left the Building, where we talk with people all over the nation, leading creative, outside the box, I mean, outside the church building, ministries that inspire and engage us. And we talk with people about why they have decided to create new and transforming ministries, especially during times such as these. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast where ministers, writers, activists, and church leaders have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Today's episode, called Our Holy Vocation, features Reverend Kendall Rathis and Reverend Aurelia Pratt. Kendall is a spiritual guide, preacher, poet, author, and feminist theologian. She is one of the co-founders of a preaching conference called Nevertheless She Preached. Aurelia is the lead pastor at Peace of Christ Church in Round Rock, Texas, where she is also a founding member. Aurelia is president of the board for the Nevertheless She Preached conference. Using the fifth chapter of Who Will Be a Witness as a Guide, we talk about the politics of the church and how the modern-day Christian community is organized around societal norms that often marginalize some people. Welcome, I'm Marta Fioriti, and I am the pastor of Black Forest Community Church, an open and affirming congregation of the United Church of Christ. And on our screen uh, today, you will see Listen and Give. Um, This is for our fall season of generosity, our financial campaign that we are doing this fall. And we also just want to say listening plus seamless giving equals Venmo. So go ahead and download that app. And I am Mandy Todd, the Director of Worship and Arts for Black Forest Community Church. I'm Marta's partner in ministry. So we will hear from Kendall and Aurelia in just a minute. But first, we want you to listen to our scripture passage, our sacred text that we invite you to ponder in full is a letter to one of the earliest church communities somewhere in and around Jerusalem, Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4. This text um, is about a community that is really trying hard to do their community the best they can, and it's often lifted up as an idyllic community, but this community was far from perfect, but I think it still has some messages in it that we all can glean and use today. In this section, a group of Hebrews and Hellenistic Jews are arguing about the unequal distribution of food, specifically around the widows in that community. And for the first century people, widows were put into the same group of people that were marginalized, the people that were hungry and poor and sick. Widows were in that same camp and they really wanted to take care of them the best they can. The sacred text challenges us to think about equal distribution, meaning that it was about justice and about fairness across all of the people. So here's the text. Now in those days, as the disciples were multiplied, there was murmuring among the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were overlooked for the daily distribution. So the 12 called the multitude of disciples together and said, 
It is not reasonable for us to leave the word of God and serve tables. Brothers, look among yourselves for seven men who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will anoint over this duty. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So Dr. Hart says in Who Will Be a Witness that the black church was born out of a segregationist impulse and practice that had been embedded in our culture through the practice of slavery. Black communities were not fully welcomed into the white church or into any other public spaces, and so they withdrew. So one of the things that Hart does in this chapter is he brings up the idea of confession. Mm -hmm. Um, He actually does it throughout the entire book, but I really felt it in this chapter the most. And so I have a confession. We have a confession. Our culture in the U.S. and our white churches and the church that I even serve as wonderful and beautiful as it is, has white supremacists and segregationist foundations. It's at our very roots as congregationalists. Mm So I'm going to give a shout out to one of my colleagues and friends, Reverend Dr. Benjamin Broadbent. I read one of his church newsletters this week because it just came up in my news feed. And he quoted uh, this idea of white supremacy that I really appreciated it. Um, And he, while it was his own words, he kind of grabbed it from an article in the Christian Century, the October edition. And so we will put that resource up. Mm -hmm. on our website for all of you. But he says, white supremacy is defined as the often unacknowledged ideal of whiteness. The unacknowledged ideal of whiteness that Mm -hmm. creates and maintains systems of policies. Hart then says, And asks the question, what if all of our churches, all of our white churches, just simply confessed this idea that white supremacy is at our foundations? Mm -hmm. It would be the beginning of a whole new learning for us. Right, for sure. So early in this chapter, Dr. Hart tells a story kind of a hypothetical story. Mm -hmm. He says, so there's a gathering room um, when there's a gathering in this room where everyone comes together for a conversation and it's the same every week they go to the same room and there is a round table in the center of the room and everyone sits around the table. But every time they gather one person always stands on the table in the very center. This is how they have done it for years. Week after week, this is how it's been done. They gather, people go around the table, and then there's one person that stands in the center. Right in the center. And then out of nowhere, someone suggests that this arrangement is not actually good or right, and it's not even working. They believe that that one person shouldn't be at the center of that table. And so they suggest that that's actually not healthy to have that person 
at the center of the table. They believe that the permanent advantage of that person's physical location perpetuates troubling social dynamics, and there needs to be a change. This is called the decentralization process. That's take, a big word. It is decentralization. When you take one person or one group from the center of the space, from the power, decentering that person or people from the center. So, of course, Drew goes on in this story um, to reflect on that one person who was asked to get out of the center of their response to it. And, of course, you know, they're quite offended because they think they're a good person, which I'm sure they were a good person because they were just stuck in this system of unequal structures. Right. um, Unjust structures. So I have another confession. Finding ways for radical reorganizing in our churches towards flattening the hierarchy is really, really uncomfortable and messy. And it's really hard because we are used to having someone in the center. Right. And at that, that had become really comfortable for people. Right. So flattening that so that no one is in the center is really hard. And it's, It's something that I want to practice. I have this really deep desire to practice. um, But I have found when I have practiced it and I'm working on it, it is also my confession is that it's really hard and it's uncomfortable. And I feel really nervous that I am going to upset other people if we try to do that. Um, And that's my little confession. Number one, that I can't do it very well, that I'm not because I'm so stuck in the hierarchical structure that I'm not actually going to do it well, or I'm not smart enough to do it well. Right. Right. Um, And then the other thing is, is that I'm going to hurt people's feelings and I don't want to do that. And that's a confession because it should be okay that I hurt people's feelings. Right. When you're doing that good, important work, right? Sometimes feelings have to get hurt, but it doesn't make it easy. It does not make it easy. Ah, So there's my, there's, I know that was actually tightening in my chest. But here's the deal. There is an assurance of God Mm. because God loves us all and in all the work that we are doing. And God has given us specific instruction, I think, especially in the book of Acts, the scriptures that we are looking at today. And even in these diverse Jewish, the Hellenistic and the Hebrews Jews fighting over figuring out how to do equal distribution. And even in the chapters that were prior to this story, it is the Pentecost story. And it's most of us know that story, but just to give you a little bit of a different way of looking at it, the Holy Spirit descends on Jerusalem that is extremely diverse. And so there's all kinds of people uh, speaking different languages. And and they're all speaking in that love in the, in their own languages. And as they're speaking, they can still do church together. It doesn't matter that they actually can't understand the actual words of each other. They can still do church together. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is just, that is the assurance of God. It's right there in our text. God is saying it does not matter um, how you come into this space. Um, I will love you. Mm -hmm. 
And so our ritual this week is actually fairly traditional. <laughs> um, I want you to go and grab your Bible and prepare for the end of our time together um, where I will say what what is up with our ritual. But make sure you go and get that Bible. So welcome. We are glad that you are with us. Um, tell us about your work, your project, your passion outside the church building, or maybe it is on the margins or around the church building, or maybe it is something that is just super outside the box, but it's still in the building. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm curious to hear what Aurelia has to say, because she does all kinds of outside the box stuff inside church. Um, I am pretty much all my work now is outside the building of the church. Um, I was a pastor for eight years. Um, but then I, uh, about a year and a half ago, left institutional church work so that I could focus on all the things I love the most. Mm -hmm. And so um, part of my work now is working as a spiritual director, spiritual guide with people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but I also have lots of, um, I, I kind of always have different projects and passions going, um, whether it's writing a book or um starting I'm starting a podcast with some friends on uh, religious trauma and but the the project that I'm particularly passionate about and that Aurelia is also a part of is this conference called Nevertheless She Preached um, which I think kind of overlaps with the themes of this chapter in a lot of ways um, what happened was about four years ago, um, is that right, Aurelia? Four years? I think so. Uh, yes. Yeah, 2017. Three, um, three or four. Anyway, we've had four, we've had four conferences. Um, Aurelia and I both went to the same, uh, seminary, which is how we first met. And, um, we were just continuing to see, um, even though our, our seminary said they supported women in ministry, there was just a, um, a lack of tangible support in terms of there weren't um, hardly any women on faculty, there weren't women in the pulpit, hardly any women in the pulpit during chapel, and, um, and also not hardly any people of color either. Um, and zero LGBTQ people who were out and open. Um, so anyway, you're not going to call out that seminary. Are you? <laughs> 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 yeah, that wouldn't be hard to find <laughs> if you Google us, I suppose. Um, but um, well, and, and what's interesting though about this story is is the way that our particular instance turned out to be so common for women across denominations, um, which was one of the really powerful things about it. So anyway, we, we were kind of, we had been asking politely for better representation of women at the seminary for a while, and it just wasn't gaining any traction. And so my friend Natalie Webb and I had this idea one year to put together a conference. We decided, let's stop waiting on the institution to give us permission to have more women's voices. Let's just create our own thing. Um, and we, there was some, some timing issues in terms of where, when we wanted it to be. And so we have this idea for this conference, but when we wanna have it is only like 
five or six weeks away. <laughs> um, we have no budget. I mean, we're just two pastors um, with an idea and we have no venue. Um, so we decide, let's just, we'll just try it out. We'll start asking a few women, see if someone will come participate. And we, um, you know, and one of the excuses our seminary kept giving us is, well, there's not, we don't have enough, there's not very many women on the, on the lineup because there aren't enough women in the field. Um, so it was kind of, the, the answer was sort of as if, well, the women don't exist. So we started reaching out and, you know, our story was, hey, we're putting on this conference. Here's why we're trying to elevate the voices of women. But by the way, we have no money. Um, we would like to pay you. We hope we can pay you. Um, but just so you know, we're starting out with nothing. And also it's in five weeks and we hope you can come. <laughs> well, we got such an overwhelming response from potential speakers that we had to keep expanding the schedule until we had nine keynote speakers. And um, my friend Heather, who's also a minister, made, made our t-shirts that say, nevertheless, she preached, mm -hmm. made up with the names of women who have preached throughout history. And we sold the, the t-shirts as a fundraiser to hopefully have some money to pay our, pay our speakers and cover our costs. And we raised $20,000 in over, in, I mean, in under six weeks. Um, with the largest donation being $500. So that wow. just shows you how, like, how many people were touched by it. And we were hearing from women. I mean, this was women all across the country, across denominations. And so what we, when we thought we were responding to this very local need, we were actually striking a chord among women um, everywhere. Absolutely. I think even when I first met you, because we're in the United Church of Christ and, you know, fairly progressive um, and far along in our um, in our progression and process. And and I was like, mm -mm, women, even in the United Church of Christ, um, struggle and have some of these same things and need this conference just as much as another. Yeah. 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 It's it's even even denominations or churches that are that seem to be very explicit about supporting mm -hmm. women um, or supporting marginalized voices in practice are not as good at doing it. So that's how Nevertheless She Preached was birthed. It was just, it was just going to be this one-time response, but it's now an annual conference. We're working towards our um, 501c3 status as a nonprofit. Um, Aurelia has been involved from the very beginning. And she is also the president of our board. Um, so she is very involved um, in that as well. So that is one of, and one of, well, that is one of my biggest projects. And what I wanted to say too, is that we started with this focus on women, but really the way we kind of talk about our mission today is that our, our, our goal as an organization is to elevate and center and celebrate the voices of women and, mar and all marginalized um, wow. um, people. So we want our experience as women to sort of inform the way we view anyone who's, who's suffering um, silencing by the institution. Mm -hmm. Can you just say one little plug in about your book that's coming out in January? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So um, I, my 
this is actually my second book. So my, I just finished um, the manuscript for my next book, which is called Thy Queendom Come, mm. um, published by Broadleaf Books. And it is kind of a look at reimagining the kingdom of God in feminist terms. And so how that, con- that kind of way of looking at the kingdom, which I call the queendom, um, challenges our patriarchal norms, our ways of thinking, our ways of talking about God, our ways of engaging with the self and our ways of engaging with each other in community. So, um, so that should I be know. out sometime. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, um, yeah, so thanks, Kendall, for the (laughs) transition here to me. Um, I am Emma Ralia Pratt. I'm the lead pastor at Peace of Christ Church in Round Rock, Texas, which is a small community that I had the pleasure of starting about nine years ago with a team of people, and we've been trucking along, doing our thing, and I'm really pleased and proud of the kind of work that we're doing. We call ourselves a unicorn church because we're just a smorgasbord of traditions and and kinds of people and, and beliefs, but we mostly consist of people who were done with church but decided to give it one more shot with us. And so we're a fun bunch of uh, irreverent um, but super loving people. I also think of you as the unicorn church because y'all are just like amazing. Yeah, I feel like we do really cool things. We don't, you know, we just don't, um, we don't compare ourselves. We just, we just sort of create within our own, you know, from within our own well of, of, of rich, I don't know, sacred art that we are able to draw upon from the people in our community. And of course we learn from, from all sorts of uh, people and places. But um, yeah, I think that my passion in my work is that of a paradigm shifter. That's what I call myself. That's what I, I call the work that I do is paradigm shifting work. And so whether I'm in my church or I'm outside of it, although we're church, we don't have a building. So <laughs> I mean, we're kind of always floating around anyway. But um, you know, whether I'm writing, or whether I am working on um, collaborating with with friends and colleagues like with Kindle and NSP, it's always kind of the same vision of shifting paradigms. And, uh, you know, I think we're all in different stops on our journey um, and we're all kind of set up in different positions. But for me, I feel like I have compassion for people who are waking up And, um, you know, we talk about deconstructing our faith, but then it's like, what's on the other side of that? And so I feel like, um, you know, I, I try to be a pastoral presence for people and give and create resources through my writing for people who are trying to make sense of the world and don't want to lose their faith, but need to shift their paradigms in order to keep it. Um, So that's kind of pretty much sums up everything. that I do, no matter what, where it is or where it's happening within the church or outside of it. Mm-hmm. So you guys don't have a building right now? We do not have a building. We're one of the, uh, we're one of the, the congregations that have kind of won. No one's winning. No one's thriving, right? We're all just trying to survive in these very strange circumstances, mm-hmm. but we have, it didn't hurt us 
COVID didn't, um, we didn't lose people, we didn't lose money, and we didn't have a building. So now we're able to save, whereas before we were always like trying to pinch our pennies together to afford to rent a space to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been saving and um, meeting online and um, trying to figure out how to be a loving presence and basically just create a whole new church. I always say our church has been rebirthed several times in the last nine years, and it's definitely been rebirthed in, in the era of COVID. And so we're creating a new church and we we always hold things lightly and we'll create another one when it's, <laughs> when it's time. Um, but yeah, we don't have a building. And it feels good to have grown into it in a very non-hierarchical way we don't Uh right we don't like hierarchy we 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 really share the load like if our um i've been the lead pastor for a couple of years and the, the previous lead pastor he and i started the church together with a team of people and when he left i think a lot of churches especially church plants could die at that point or be reeling um but when he left we were like we're super sad, but we're going to be fine because we, we, you know, it's, there's no one person who runs the show. <laughs> it's shared. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what does it mean for you to do this work outside of your faith communities or outside of um, the traditional church building faith communities and how might the church, big C church, um, be reformed and transformed by the work that you do, um, in the world? What do you, what do you envision? How does, how is this going to change things, um, more than just within your own particular communities? Well, so I was, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like bring up the book. Okay. Um, (laughs) so I really, I really liked and resonated with something he talked about, like right at the, near the beginning of the chapter, because he said it often seems like the church is hypocritically calling on the broader society to administer justice in ways mm-hmm. that it is unwilling to do within the body of Christ. You know, and that was sort of his theme throughout the chapter, I, I thought, was that, you know, we have these so-called progressive-leaning churches that want to see justice for everybody, you know, out in society, but we're not willing to do the really hard work of um looking at the ways our own institutions are, are structured. Mm-hmm. Right. So an example of that would be like when I was a, when I was working as a pastor, um, you know, there, there was a lot of power in the people who have been at the church for a long time, right? Like that's pretty common um, that the power kind of resides with those who have been there the longest. Um, and then And then you would hear people complain like, well, we're trying to get the new people to join our committees and they're just not joining them. Um, Like sort of like, well, if we just get them to to do the roles that we've been doing, then they could have a voice. But that's not going deep enough, right? Like the church needs to rethink the committee structure altogether. You know, is the structure itself inviting to new people? Is it um, really welcoming them in? So it's kind of like you've got to do sort of a massive overhaul. Is it just in itself? Yeah. And and I think a lot of times organizations don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think part of my draw (laughs) to working um, on projects sort of outside the walls of the church or just starting my own stuff is 
um, or starting stuff with other people is that you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to dismantle the old structure, right? You just right. kind of build, you build from the ground up. And, and while it's your, those um, patriarchal and white supremacist structures can still get built in from the beginning. I think it's a little easier to evaluate, you know, mm-hmm. as you go. Mm-hmm. But my hope is that by creating something new, it it gives vision to structures and organizations and churches that already exist to say, mm-hmm. oh, like we never thought of, we never thought of doing it that way. Yeah, you uh, can be successful with doing it this new way, this new creative way, instead of the way that. Yeah. So like if you model it, right. Cause it's, it's really hard to change a structure from the inside out, but if you have something, if you have someone else modeling it for you, like if right. a church or an organization can be like, look what NSP is doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can apply some of that to the way we structure things. That's a, that's an easier sell than just trying to step out into it on your own, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think, I, I hope that at NSP, one of the things we've modeled is um, the absolute centering of marginalized voices mm-hmm. um, and that we're continually getting better and better at that. And that we're also, um, I hope we're modeling how to listen, you know, like when, as we've received critique and someone has said, you know, this really felt like um, a white space to me or I really noticed this was lacking instead of being defensive, which is what we've experienced from our patriarchal structures. And, you know, that instead we've been able to model um, apologizing, listening, um, changing, growing, adapting. And so by modeling those things as a brand new organization, I hope that it gives inspiration to people who are having to work within the confines of an already established structure but what we're doing expands their imagination. Mm. That would be my hope. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting is as you were talking, I was thinking about how n- not only have you brought um, people who don't normally have a voice to um, to the platform, um, but there's never just one, right? Right. Like mm-hmm. you share it across the board. Like there's never just one person that's standing in the center. Um, and so I think what's interesting And I bet most people aren't going to think you have to be explicit about it a little bit. Like what would it mean for Sunday mornings in a church for that voice to be shared all Mm -hmm. of the time, like consistently Mm -hmm. shared in the way that you do in nevertheless, you preached. Mm -hmm. I think that alone is so simple, but I think it'd be like actually super scary Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. for so many people. Um, especially clergy people who like, this is what we were trained to do. So we have to do it and nobody else can do it. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And and a lot of times if you're not, if a, if a senior pastor isn't preaching on Sundays, then people think, oh, well, the pastor is not doing their job. Oh, my cat is joining us. Um, you know, so there's also this pressure from, from the community to sort of keep everything the same. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, oh, yeah. well, we expect the pastor to be the one up front mm-hmm. doing the talking. Um, so a lot of it is it changing our expectations um, and what we're used to. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's so funny because I, I only I saved one like little underlined part of what I read and it was the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
I beat you to it. Because <laughs> it's like we we have to, in order to do this, in order to not be hypocritical and to mirror the work of justice within the church and to do what you know to practice what we're preaching, we've got some stuff to dismantle, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've got to deconstruct some stuff, but we we can't deconstruct without also decolonizing. And we can't decolonize, like white people can't lead in decolonizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like people of color have to share their experiences and their truth and their pain Mm -hmm. so that we understand what needs to be decolonized. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a, a lot of the processes that we inherit are colonized processes mm-hmm. um, in the church and so That's the scary it, part yeah and so we don't always even know I mean we're all har- everyone's harmed by it it's not like mm-hmm. some people are and aren't it's, it's bad for everybody mm-hmm. but yeah thinking about um just NSP and the way that you're you're well we are doing work that is is not informed. It, it's really decolon. It's a decolonized way of do of looking at success. We have to decolonize what success is, mm-hmm. and I think churches just get so hung up on yes. growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they do grow, the budget grows, and then they're dependent. And I was thinking about this when COVID started. Like I, I had so much compassion for churches that really needed to figure out how to get back to, to, to worship because they've got a payroll. And if people aren't coming to church, then they can't pay their staff. And it's like this whole big business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was just so problematic to me that it turns into such an institution Mm -hmm. that you have to put people's lives at risk so that you can, you're, you're, you know what I mean? It's so, Mm -hmm. oh yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I always, it's, there are a lot of cons to being a church that doesn't have any money, (laughs) but I always say like, we're able to critique the church truthfully because Mm -hmm. we don't have to, we don't have politics and payroll, um, informing our decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just, I think when you decolonize what success looks like for a church, success looks like you know, he, people that are experiencing healing and people that are knowing the way of Christ and a community of people that are being Christ in the world. And that's success. That richness is success, mm-hmm. not the growth. And I feel like with NSP, that's what you see is just this energy of um, throwing off what was and doing mm-hmm. something totally new with badass women and women of color um, leading the way. And it looks totally different than what you what you usually see with conferences, with churches, with any of it. Right. You know, I, I was thinking about how um, there was this one time I was preaching virtually for Aurelius Church um, during COVID. And s- someone who was watching on Facebook was a little upset by what I was saying. And was commenting so and so I texted Aurelia afterwards as 
half serious, half joking. Like, I really hope I just didn't upset like your biggest donor. (laughs) You know, and she was, and she was like, well, we just, we don't operate that way. Like that's, that's never been the way we operate. And it was, it was so refreshing because that's, I mean, that's really kind of a common thing you talk about as ministers is like, having to kind of toe the line so that, so to keep your budget at a certain place. And that just makes it so hard to be faithful Mm -hmm. to the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a really cool experience to be able to have her say like, our church just doesn't like, that's just not how we operate. We say what we believe in our hearts and spirits need to be said. And then we say it. I love that. That's amazing how you've created a culture like that there. I, that was actually one of my confessions before we started. I, you know, that the the confession was, is that I want to do this work of decolonizing. And I know that's a, that's a huge word for people out there, but, um, for, um, you know, doing the work of justice. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and at the same time, my confession is, is that it's super scary. Mm -hmm. Like I get super worried that I'm going to upset people and, and you are, like, there's no doubt you're going to. And that is like the embedded um, sort of white supremacy, um, you know, culture. Keeping everything even. And even nice. Is okay. Yeah. Um, so that's amazing that you've created that <clears throat> culture there. But that is also like, you know, they started it from the, from right. the ground up. Yeah. Well, we um, didn't start off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I feel like there is a rebirth, a pretty significant one. Um, and and so I'm just affirming that it is not easy for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, are we in number three? We are. Heart <laughs> okay. um, pushes churches to not only call for justice on the macro level of broader society, but also practice this justice institutionally on the micro level. Why is it important that churches organize themselves to be micro expressions of the delivering presence of Jesus? And I feel like we've touched on that a little bit. I, I'm a micro thinker naturally. Macro okay. is not my autopilot, so micro is easier for me. <laughs> I have to stretch yeah, I have to stretch myself for the other. But I feel like one going super micro into individuals, you know, we have to do healing inner work that we're each responsible for. I can't do the work for my congregation. Like, so we have to be preaching constantly, you know, do your own work. We have to be leading in a way that people are equipped to do their Mm -hmm. own work, their own healing work, their own anti-racism work. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't do it for you. It's such an inner work. And then like a little bit more macro, but still micro, the local church, um, it's sort of like voting, right? Sometimes you feel like your one vote doesn't make a difference, but add it all up, it really does. And you need to, you know, you need to contribute in that way. I feel that like that was a plug-in for our tricky election right. coming up this week. <laughs> go I mean, vote. Go vote. Exactly. Good job. Wait, it's like that is. Yeah. <laughs> but so the local church is powerful. 
And the church universal has so much power. I mean, the reason we're in this shit show of patriarchy and white supremacy is because of the church, because of the church's power over the masses to shape their realities through theological doctrine. Um, and so the local church, you know, what you're preaching and teaching to all of these individuals who are only thinking about you for an hour a week, and then the rest of the time they're off doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. It really matters because that collective of that one local church can change the world because all of those people are talking to their friends or raising kids or voting or whatever. And that their ability to understand the importance of, you know, all of these concepts that are, that academics and theologians are writing and thinking about their ability to embody it into the world is what's going to usher us into a better world, you know, more closely reflecting the kingdom of heaven. I would say that, that micro, um, personal, intentional own work that you're talking about um, for your, I think that's the hardest job of them all. Like, do you have any like thoughts on, is it just coming through the preaching? Is it, or do you have other ways of, do you constantly provide resources and books? And because yeah. <laughs> we, we feel like we're constantly like just putting all of that stuff out there, but it's yeah. hard. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I want to write a whole book on like the hierarchy of preaching and pastoring uh -huh. because it really feels broken to me that there's yes. so many churches only have one pastor. And I feel like the reason I can feel proud of, of what we're providing for community is only because there's two other pastors and we're a team mm -hmm. and we, we, we really just do it together. I mean, I couldn't do it by myself and we all are very different and have different strengths and, you know, speak to different things and listen to different podcasts and read different books and share all that. And you, so those do come through our, um, our, our sermons, but we try to be, we try to offer content because that's the world we live in. So, mm -hmm. you know, we do live pastoral reflections during the week, which we call sext, <laughs> the sixth hour of the Love divine office. but um you know catches people's attention <laughs> so we try to offer like dip, you know lots of resources to um to what we're what we're going through and what we're reflecting on but also bring in other voices constantly we're constantly bringing in other voices which is so easy to do now because yes. i know yes, i love it too that Kindle is so right. The main issue with that is that people think their pastor isn't working if they're not preaching. And that is just not true. Do you have anything to add to that, Kendall? Well, I what I thought about when 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 you were talking about macro and micro is is that it seems to me that if if we aren't getting the micro right then our macro efforts are more likely to cause harm than good mm. because they're coming out like half-baked, right? <laughs> like, um, so when we try to do these, you know, huge things or make these big statements, for example, but we haven't done the inner work, mm -hmm. um, 
we're more likely to perpetuate harm without realizing it, like mm. thinking that we're doing the enlightened thing, but um, not really doing the enlightened thing. So um, I'll, I'll try to give an example. So what I'm saying is more concrete. Like I think about, um, you know, efforts to be inclusive and then how that often turns into tokenism, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. it comes from this quote, good, place mm -hmm. but if you haven't kind of done all the layers of work then you end up tokenizing someone versus really creating an mm -hmm. equitable sharing mm -hmm. um you know or i think about like churches who try to be welcoming to the lgbtq community but they haven't really rooted out their homophobia mm -hmm. and and you can end up causing more more damage than actually healing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just things like that that I think you know the 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 micro is what the macro is built upon. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think starting at the micro level mm -hmm. is what gets you to a healthy macro. Mm -hmm. And I think too often we sort of maybe jump to the macro because it's more mm -hmm. flashy, like <laughs> you know it, yeah. it, it's. It, it makes for a better performance. Mm -hmm. um, but but if we don't do that, that inner work, and if we don't do those really small details of, of how we structure things and how we relate to one another, um, then I think, yeah, the, the, the macro isn't going to go so well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is actually really point on Kendall. Yeah. That's really good. Mm -hmm. So and we've talked about this a little bit, but why would you say it's important that we name the power dynamics within our churches? I think that your point, Kendall, just now obviously fits to that. Um, and how how does this often uncomfortable practice help us refine our witness and reform our practice of life together? So I think it ties back to that idea of confession, right? Like why why is it so important? that we confess these things, that, that we speak them, that we return to them. Um, and, and how does that, you know, how does that play into who we become together? Well, I, I want to, I want to say it's first, it's just so, so important. <laughs> it's so, so important <laughs> to name the power dynamics. And I guess I would say as to why, because they're there <laughs> um, and not saying it doesn't make it go away. <laughs> um, and, and, um, and if the church isn't, um, doesn't embody truth telling, then what are we doing? Um, you know, I think about, you know, this line of scripture that the, that the truth will set you free. Right. <laughs> but there's without, without the truth telling piece, there's, you can't get to the freedom piece. So if we, if we want to be enacting liberation, if we want to be setting people free, we have to tell the truth about what the chains are. Um, and um, when we don't name those power structures, they're allowed to continue to live and fester and, and cause some serious harm, but the harm gets passed over. I mean, you think about, I, I, I think about, there's so many examples of this, but just the way um, sexism or sexual harassment has gotten covered over and how the Me Too movement has started to bring some of that to light. But it's like, you can't begin to heal. You can't begin to 
to, to transform until you name until you name the problem and um, I think power dynamics make us feel yucky like we don't want to admit that it's happening you know in our congregations we all just want to be like oh we're all just nice and friendly and everybody's the same but it but that's not what's really happening so we have to be able to name it in order to um, as Aurelia would say shift the paradigm um, and begin to share the power rather than lord the power over yeah um yeah and to add to that do you do you all know mark charles um he's running for president (laughs) (laughs) president. he's an indigenous leader and theologian and uh he's amazing i just i think i think i gave did i give you his book I can I feel like I did. But um, I feel like you listen to him talk and then you have to go like lay down under a blanket for a while because it's intense. It's good, good stuff. But I feel like this question boils down to his concept of common memory. Mm. Uh, and basically we cannot we cannot move forward in liberation work, which is the same thing as resurrection work, right? Because resurrection is new life and we are not, I mean, new life is free life, right? And we we have to all be free for it to be real. And so we can't move forward in that liberation work if we are, are, if we don't have the same memory of what happened in our past. Mm. And um, he says where common memory is lacking where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. And so Mm. me, that is a part of confession is, is saying, I acknowledge, I acknowledge what your memory, I acknowledge your memory is true. Your, whether that's in generational trauma that people of color inherit or the experiences of our LGBTQ siblings, whatever it is, whatever the um, injustice is, we have to acknowledge it so that we can share in it and then move forward together. You can't just move forward and act like it didn't happen. That's very. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a theme that has come up in, in multiple of our conversations with people around the chapters of this book, this idea of, recognizing and sitting with suffering of other people. And just last week, um, Benjamin Reynolds talked about reading um, notes in the margin and being able to understand a person, personal experience. And I think that that, that's just such a key point to, to all of this. Yes. I I listened to that one last night and I remember that part. I was thinking this, um, he, he said that he wrote in the margin, like, Learning from what people write in their margins of what they've been reading, you get yeah, that was a great image. That was a really great image that he gave with that. Um, well, I can like literally sit here and talk to you guys <laughs> about church. You have so much wisdom and thoughtfulness about all of it. Um, <laughs> okay, what concrete thing, um, practice or ritual or um, leadership tactic um, or model would you um, suggest to the world um, around some of these things that we have talked about? What would you suggest for the church or the individual? Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> okay. And, and I was thinking micro because 
I didn't have a lot of time. And that was the first thing that came to my mind was a sort of micro thought. But I do think that this, I want to challenge listeners to consider this thought, okay? Um, to consider and question your relationship with time. This is mm -hmm. something I've been doing during COVID. Some space has opened up. Of course, life is also still crazy and busy and chaotic. And I have a kid and life is hard, but I've been questioning my relationship with time and even considering how to decolonize my relationship with time mm -hmm. and um, moving from a rigid relationship with time where I need to produce and make other people happy and find a sense of self-worth, letting all of that go and moving into a relationship with time that is more intuitive and more embodied where I'm listening to what my body needs. Um, and the other day, oh, it was Sunday and I was preaching and I did not have time for this, but my body told me to go take a bath like 45 minutes before I was supposed to be online. <laughs> and I was I like, I, I gotta do, I cannot, I cannot go in my office right now and do this sermon unless I take a bath. I just know I'm supposed to do this. Maybe and I, I both love that. <laughs> I'm not even a big bath person, but I had to do it in that moment. And I, and I thought to myself, this is months of unbinding myself from a certain relationship with time. And I'm telling you, it changed my whole le energy level. My mm. I was so calm and relaxed. And I had, I felt better than I had in weeks on a Sunday with all the technical stuff. And anyway, I know that everyone has different schedules. Like we all have a lot going on, but we can all question and challenge our own relationship with time and have some defiance there. Like mm. take a nap you know, mm -hmm. like take the nap in the middle of the day, you're working from home. Like mm -hmm. if you are take the nap right. <laughs> or whatever. No, um, that's a great practice. Yeah. You yeah. should follow the nap ministry on Instagram. <laughs> oh my gosh. They're so great. I'm like, anytime I feel guilty about my nap, I'm like, Nope, just going to Instagram for a minute. <laughs> rest is resistance. Hashtag rest is resistance. <laughs> yeah. I love that. You know what? Something I thought of, I was thinking of like the ways I have begun to think about structuring um, like small group conversations or decision-making processes or, and um, uh, well, <laughs> a funny story about this is um, that when I was um, my youth pastor and I, when we were at youth camp, like we were having the hardest time getting the kids to focus. <laughs> it was just like, you know, just, and we had a couple of really strong personalities that were just constantly interrupting and then quieter personalities that weren't saying anything, which is really not that much unlike adult dynamics. Um, but because they were youth, we felt, I think we felt more freedom to get playful about it. And so we kind of created this whole game of um, there was sort of a points system. And like, if you interrupted somebody, you lost a point. Um, if you spoke to the topic, you gained a point. But after you, but say, like, if you had five points and then you added yet another point, like it was your sixth time to talk, then you lost a point instead because your fifth point was your or third point or whatever it was. That was your signal, like, 
you shared enough, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let everyone else share. And it was this game and the kids got really into it. Um, and it was really interesting to watch the dynamic sh- shift. And, and one of the personalities who was sort of the loudest, he just took it upon himself that he was determined that everyone would, there was like some prize if you got to a certain, like, had a certain number of points like he wanted everyone in the circle to win and so he was all about helping the quiet people talk mm-hmm. and so his whole focus mm-hmm. shifted um but i've been pr- not the game per se but just the practice of like when you're in a group setting up the dynamics at the beginning with some helpful guidelines mm-hmm. you know like establishing we're going to have a practice of not interrupting um when someone is saying something that makes you feel anxious here's how you can handle that take a deep breath examine what acknowledge what you're feeling to yourself before you respond um pay attention to how many times have you contributed to this conversation and notice who has it contributed and you know if you kind of do some of that education and that expectation setting at the beginning it can really and you just do it in a sort of you know you're not you're not chastising anyone because nothing's happened yet you're just setting the expectation Mm -hmm. um and then sometimes the group dynamics are are totally different um because you've just met you've just named you've just named some concrete ways to make sure that certain voices don't get centered over other voices yeah uh, anyway that came to mind as well. it's, it's one way of flattening the hierarchical structure and it's on a super micro level but that is a really great practice um you know i was just envisioning doing it like with the board or with a staff team or that that sort of thing um or even in like a small group right so this week I asked you to run and get your Bible for our ritual at the end of this episode and what I want you to do is I want you I invite you to read Acts chapter 6 the whole chapter if you can about the fight for justice and maybe the implicit confession of injustice And then I actually want you to return to chapter 2 and read about the coming of the Holy Spirit as a form of God's assurance, as a form of God's love for all of us. We believe that our holy vocation is to confess our wrongdoing as a nation and church, as well as flatten, flatten our hierarchical structures. Next week, we will hear from Reverend Lydia Munoz on how she is being a witness as we discuss Chapter 6, Justice and the Worshiping Community. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Find us on Facebook at Black Forest Community Church, United Church of Christ. And message us to learn how you can be a part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world. To support our work, search for Black Forest Community Church on Venmo to make a one-time donation or a regular commitment with as little as $1 a month. You'll get regular communications and updates about our stories. Thank you to all those people that support and listen. 
could not do this without you.